What exactly happens when you die? Will you be able to recognize your family in heaven? And before we unpack that, I want to just open the can a little bit for what we're going to talk about next week. Here's next week's message. What happens in the end? What about the rapture? What about the millennium years? As Jews don't believe Christ has come, will they repent at the time that Jesus does return? Would Isis be the second beast sent to honor the first beast, for those of you who have read the book of Revelation? Will children continue to be born after the second coming? Now, those of you who have studied end-time stuff know that each one of those questions could well be a six- to eight-week series alone. And so if you want to come next week, if you've ever heard a shotgun sermon, next week will be it. For the most part, we try to uh, focus in on specific text. We emphasize what's called expository preaching at Rocky Mount Baptist Church. That's a big word for simply saying we hone in on a specific passage of the Bible and we try to draw out from that passage as much as we can in the time that we have. But based on the questions that some of, of you smart cookies submitted, there's going to have to be a whole lot of verses next week addressing a whole lot of stuff. And it may simply just stir a big pot, but as long as they're biblical worms, we don't mind opening the can, right? As long as they're worms of Scripture. So today we're going to focus in on what exactly happens after death. You ever thought about that? You know, we're going along in life and then sometimes it hits us. Maybe it's at a funeral. Maybe it's just out of nowhere. And we think, you know what? There's going to be a time, even though I can't even fathom, fathom that. Are you, you with me? Like the thought of my own death just seems weird. Because I've, as long as I can remember, I've been, all, I've been alive. Some of y'all, whoa. Dude, man. Oh. Right? And so like all that we know about the world is a world in which, track with me, we've been apart. True or not true? But if you ever stop to think, what happens when I die? And all of us are going to die like 95, 105, 115, right? None of us are going to have a quote-unquote early death. Whether you take care of yourself or whether you're just like, man, they know who I am at every fry place in Franklin County. Like how we take care of ourselves has nothing to do with it. But if you ever notice that when we think about death, it's something that's so far in the distant future that it's so inconceivable that we really don't even know what to think about it. And if we could take it a step further, none of us really like to think about it. And if you ask that question in today's culture, what exactly happens when you die? Or one question that we'll address as well is, will you be able to recognize your family in heaven? There's going to be all sorts of answers. And what we're going to try to get across from Hebrews chapter 9 and verses 27 and 28 is that the Bible teaches that there are no second chances after death. And what we're going to do today is we're going to try to go southeast Louisiana. For those of you who've been there, you know they use a lot of cast nets. There's fishing with a rod and reel, and then there's cast nets in which you fling it in a Cajun-esque fashion, and you try to grab as many fish as possible, go as wide as you can to get as much fish mass as you possibly can. Then you draw it together, and it's a catch. 
What we're going to do today is we're going to throw the cast net wide and try to capture a lot of these cultural answers to the question, what happens after death? And then we're going to draw it in and tag into Hebrews chapter 9 to see what God's word says. And if you ask this question in today's culture, one of the responses that you'll probably get is reincarnation or rebirth. And that's the belief that there is the rebirth of a soul after death in a new body that could be a human or an animal. Keith Ward, in his book published by Oxford University Press called Religion and Human Nature, notes, and I quote, the rebirth hypothesis in the end gives an unsatisfactory explanation of the great inequalities of human birth and has a morally questionable tendency to blame the disadvantaged for their own condition. What he's saying is that if we really stop to think about karma and about the idea of reincarnation and rebirth, what it would mean is, for example, let's say someone is trying to do harm to you. You could put any type of tag on it. Someone's trying to seriously hurt you, misuse you, and what they're trying to do is straight up evil, wicked, and messed up on any system. It's reasonable to think what they're trying to do is evil. Let's take molestation. If someone attempts that on a child, the intent and the act is evil. True? But on reincarnation, it's not that the child is the victim, go with me here, but the child in a previous life did something that was wrong, and so what's going to happen in this life is bad things are going to happen to the child so the child can suffer out the past bad. Are we still tracking? Put on the floaties. Because if reincarnation is true, it's not that the child is innocent and, and the perpetrator should be punished. It's simply the child working off bad karma from something that he or she had done in a previous life. What it means is that if reincarnation is true, you and I should view the actions that other people take towards us as directly caused by our stupidity or evil in past lives. So what reincarnation really does, if you think, think, think about it, is it completely guts the, co the concept of evil itself. And, and karma... In reincarnation, the only way that you can get out of it is if you suffer it out. You see, karma is a cruel system. Karma is a mechanistic system of suffering, and there is no place for grace or mercy or for an ultimate personal God. Keith Ward also says, if my karma must play itself out, then any alleviation of my suffering by another, whether it be God or creatures, can only postpone it in another life. So for example, if you come across the situation 
of the woman being attacked or the child being molested and you intervene, you're actually not doing the right thing. You're simply prolonging their suffering because they've got to go through pain in order to work off the bat. So our whole concept of heroes, our whole concept of police officers and military, the first responders, the genocide stoppers, if they were allowed to. That thin red line, both overseas and both here, that stops evil from completely breaking down the system. You're not actually doing something that's morally good when you stop the quote-unquote bad guy. You're actually prolonging the suffering of the would-be victim. That's reincarnation. That's karma. That's rebirth. Now I'm going to suggest to you that that is morally and a morally abhorrent and a morally objectionable view. In other words, if we're thinking Christian or non-Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, and we have the law of God written on our heart, we can look at that system and say, you know what? I may not be a believer in the Bible, but that does not seem right. But many, many people today say what happens after death is you're simply reincarnated based upon what happened in your previous life. And if it's true, reincarnation, there's no way to gauge it. There's no assurances there's no specific prescriptions. You could come back as a king or a cockroach. There's no real way to tell. And the only way to get off the bad karma is if you suffer. There is no place for grace in reincarnation. And the goal in Hinduism, from which the belief of reincarnation comes, and Plato also believed in the transmigration of the soul, um, but for those of you that enjoy reading that, let's sit down and have a cup of coffee sometime and talk about it. But either way, east or west, there's the belief many uh, millennia ago that we are reincarnated. But here's the problem. In the belief of reincarnation, the goal to escape the wheel of suffering is that you simply cease to exist as a personal entity. It means the goal for Jeff and for Jen is one day billions and trillions of years in the future. The goal, unlike Christianity, to be with the creator God who has given his son to save us from our sins. To be with him for all eternity. That's not the goal in Hinduism and reincarnation and karma. The goal is to blend into the nothingness. Kind of like if you're mixing a big huge vat of paint and you drop in one small drop of a different color paint and it keeps mixing and it keeps mixing it completely absorbs so the point of reincarnation is for you and I to completely stop existing at all what a sad sad world if that were the case if you're talking to someone who has a Muslim background they'll say something to the effect of the scales of justice that's what determines what happens after death and this is in your notes the Quran, chapter 23, verses 102 and 103, the Quran says, And those whose scales are heavy with good deeds, it is they who are the successful. But those whose scales are light, those are the, the ones who have lost their souls, being in hell, abiding eternally. So on Islam... You escape or go to hellfire depending on whether your good works outweigh your bad. As I was preparing for this message, I said, you know what? Now that I think about it, I have met 
hundreds of Carhartt jacket-wearing, early-morning Hardy's coffee-drinking, shotgun rack in the back of the 4x4 installing, conservative voting, traditional Americans who are far more Muslim than they are Christian. Because when we talk about eternal things, with a camo jacket, he will say to the question, well, where do you think you'd go if you died? This is all over Franklin County. You just don't know Franklin County's primarily Muslim. I'm, think, go, go with me. Because the uh, responses that many of us have received is something to the effect of, well, I've tried to do more, more good than bad, so I hope that the man upstairs, man, if you, if you refer, I love Peyton, but if you, if you refer to the God of the Bible as the man upstairs, you probably don't know much about him. That's not a smart, dumb thing. That's just an understanding that he is the, the one true God who's holy. And the answers that we get are, well, I've tried to do more good than, than bad. I've tried to be a good mom, a good husband, a good father. I've tried to hold my temper. I've tried to be, to be um, integrity-filled at my job. That's a Muslim answer. That's not a Christian answer. Again, you can, you can vote straight conservative in all of the political aspects. You can have American flags. You can hang a rebel flag for those that are Southerners and, you know, Southern bread, all of the above. But if you think that you get into heaven because you do more good than bad, you have a Muslim understanding of salvation, not a Christian one, regardless of how many times you're sprinkled or baptized or how many churches you've attended. We clear? The Quran clearly says it's an issue of the scales of justice. Let me just make a note here. Let me, can I plug Christianity for just uno minute? Christianity blows all of this out of the water because Christianity says that without God, you are lost, you are doomed, you are damned. There is no hope in all of the world for your sins to be paid for, but there's one man, and his name is Jesus. And he came and he took on all of what it meant to be a human minus the sin, and he suffered, and he died, and he completely eradicated the scale because Jesus is perfect and holy, and he rose from the dead, and that if you give him your life, if you place your faith in him, if you turn to him in faith and commitment, he is the one who will get you into heaven and change your life and give you a new heart. Amen. Amen. And you see, you see, here's the difference. That's not something that I could ever in a million, million years even think to earn. Can't do it. There are other options in addition that are offered today about what happens when you die. One would be from our Roman Catholic friends. The idea of purgatory. They would say there's heaven for those who have achieved sainthood. There's hell for those who have done poorly, and again, it's a very similar concept um, in Islam. But there's also something in between called purgatory or limbo, and this is what the Roman Catholic teaches, quote, purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. They say that's what purgatory is. 
And it's experienced by those who, quote, die in God's grace and friendship, but they're still imperfectly purified. And it also notes that this final purification of the elect is entirely different than the punishment of the damned. Meaning in Roman Catholic theology that it's very possible for a person to die and go to the middle level, which, by the way, the Scripture does not teach, and there you suffer out, you sweat out the stuff that would keep you out of heaven. It's interesting, the Guardian in the UK, it's a very large newspaper there, published an article, and the title of the article is, quote, Vatican offers time off purgatory to followers of Pope Francis tweets. <laughs> this is no joke. And again, hey, listen, if, you're, if, you're, if that's your background, Roman Catholic, we're so glad you're here. What we, what we believe is that the Scripture is the foundation, not Scripture and church uh, history or church, church authority. But, but just stay, stay with me for this next point. And it is, quote, in its latest attempt, this is from the article, to keep up with the times, the Vatican has married one of its oldest traditions in the world of social media, by offering, quote, indulgences, and by the way, that's a way for your sin to kind of get white out. Back in the medieval times, you would pay the church and they would do a special mass for you, and that's one of the ways that you could have your sin cleansed. Offering indulgences to followers of Pope Francis's tweets. The church granted indulgences to reduce the time Catholics believe they will have to spend in purgatory after they have confessed and been absolved of their sins. The problem with purgatory, in addition to it's not found in the scripture at all, and even the, the Apocrypha, which is part of the Roman Catholic Bible that's not scripture, even the verses that they use in the Apocrypha don't actually teach that it's a reality. And if those of you who want to go research that, that's 2 Maccabees chapter 12 and verses 43 through 45. But theologically, the problem, in addition to the lack of textual evidence in the Bible, the problem theologically with the concept of purgatory or limbo is that Jesus is not a complete Savior because he needs your help to suffer out your sins in purgatory before you're ready for heaven. What it means is that Jesus is not a complete savior, but rather he's an assister, a helper, a co-worker, and a partner. As opposed to what the Bible teaches, that praise God, Jesus is the savior. And Jesus is the one who cleanses us from all sin. Then there's another option within liberal Christianity, and it's called annihilationism, when people are asked what happens after death. And this is the belief that unsaved persons cease to exist when they die. This is a misunderstanding of a Greek word meaning destruction. And when you look up the Greek word, this is in Philippians 3.19, 2 Thessalonians 2.9, and 2 Peter 3.7, you find that destruction does not mean annihilation, meaning ceasing to exist, but what destruction means is it means ruin. When the Old Testament talks about a town that was destroyed, it doesn't mean that the, that the town ceased to exist, that there was no more, uh, for example, rocks and rubble at Jericho. It meant that Jericho was completely ruined meaning that people who die without Christ are eternally and completely ruined. Then there's universalism, the belief that everybody in the end is going to make it. 
Those of you who follow the, the show Lost several years ago, the final conclusion of the series, that was universalism. Universalism says, in the end, everybody's gonna make it in. And then there's something called inclusivism, which says that those who have never heard the gospel will be saved, but the Bible says otherwise. Romans chapter two, verses 14 through 15 tells us that even those who have not heard the gospel sin against their own conscience because they have the law of God written on their conscience, which that's why it's incumbent upon us to bring the gospel all across the world. And if we can bring the the cast net in a little tighter, we're going to call this, it's not even in your notes, but I couldn't not mention it, Christian emotionalism or Christian experientialism. How many of you have heard the book several years ago, Heaven is for Real, a little boy's astounding story of his trip to heaven and back? All over the newsways. There's another book by Kevin Malarkey called The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, published in 2010. You know what I've seen in evangelical Christianity, and that's Christians who simply believe the gospel, is how quickly we leave the authority of the scripture and we go to something that is emotional and something that is inspirational. I love it when it gets quiet. Because conservative, Bible-believing, evangelical Christians, when these books come out, You have to be very careful because we don't have the time to belabor it, but both of these books are incredibly inconsistent. And there's also the issue of authority. Do we trust more a person's personal account, allegedly, or do we trust the scriptures about what's going to happen after death? In January 21st, 2015, Kevin Malarkey, who wrote the book, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, said, he's now 16, or he's 17 now, he revealed in his blog, he said, I went to heaven, I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. There's an article that was recently published called The Boy Who Didn't Come Back from Heaven. Inside a bestseller's deception, Alex Malarkey co-wrote a best-selling book about a near-death experience and then last week admitted that he made it up. So why wasn't anyone listening to a quadriplegic boy and a mother who simply wanted the truth to be heard? And he said, I did not die. I did not go to heaven. When I made the claims, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. Alex later wrote on his repentance. But for those of you that were tracking with those books, it was mind-boggling the amount of conservative And by that, we don't mean dress, music style. We mean believing the Bible. Christians that went head over heels because those books are emotional. They do tug at your heartstrings. Especially the account of him saying that he supposedly saw his little sister who had been lost in a miscarriage and she was around two years old. And I mean, if you've ever gone through something like that, you know how something like that could just tear you up and and draw you in emotionally. But I'm, I'm begging you, brothers and sisters, do not allow yourselves to be driven and tossed about by Christian so-called emotionalism or experientialism. What we need to be is driven by the text of Scripture. 
And so what does the Bible actually teach about what happens when a person dies? Well, the scripture clearly teaches that when a person dies, they go immediately into either the presence of God in heaven or they go immediately into hell. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, the apostle Paul says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For if we walk by faith, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So the Apostle Paul gives two distinctions. One, we're living, we're alive, we're in the body here, or when we die, we go to be with the Lord if we are saved. Now, if you're not saved, this is what the scripture says happens when you die immediately. This is Jesus, Luke 16, beginning in verse 22. And he says, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, and the rich man also died and was buried. Now, he's not saying that rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven necessarily. It was a faith issue in this story. And Jesus says, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side and called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 24, the apostle Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. The desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So the scripture is clear that when a person dies, dependent upon their relationship with Christ, they go immediately into the presence of God or immediately away from the presence of God into hell. And not only that, the scripture is clear that there are no second chances. We don't get to travel between heaven and hell and hell and heaven, and it's that death eternally seals a person's fate Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 11 speaks of those who have rejected God. It says, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. This is not just those who are going to be in the end times worshiping the beast. This is a collective description of all who have rejected Jesus Christ. In other words, the scripture says there is eternal conscious torment forever and there's no end to it. And on the other hand, there's eternal bliss being with Christ. And the Bible is clear that the way in which a person responds to Jesus Christ and his claims to be God in the flesh, that determines their eternal destiny. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 again with verse 28. The Bible says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ this is so good. Having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You say, well, Jeff, will I be able to recognize my family in heaven? The only people that you will recognize in heaven are those who are there. 
This is not going to be popular, but we'll just say it. I've never been to a funeral to where the person's gone to hell. We communicating or are we communicating? Like they, they, they could have had a zero regard for the word of God. If missionaries and mission work around the world had been dependent upon them, they would have starved and their children would have starved long ago. No passion for God, no passion for the church, no appetite for the Bible. But then when they're in the funeral home and the eulogies are given, often preachers have the tendency to somehow popishly declare people into heaven. May God have mercy on us. We're not trying to, to drag up old things and create emotional trauma where there doesn't need to be, but I want to encourage you to think that if the scripture is true, only those who've been redeemed by Christ are in heaven. And let me take it a step further. Heaven is not about us being reunited with our physical families, it's not. That's the last Sunday I'm gonna come here. Man, there's plenty. There's plenty of liberal churches in Southwest Virginia we could give you a great recommendation to. But the point of heaven is not in any way the reuniting of us with our physical families, but the point of heaven is that we are with Christ. And through Christ's mercy, some of us, he's redeemed family members. But even greater than that, you see, Jeff, I'm broken because most of my family doesn't know Christ. You should be encouraged because guess what? You're still here so you can win them to Jesus. It's not finished yet. And even more so, when you get saved, God gives you a brand new family. Come on. To where it's thicker than blood. It's thicker than water. He gives you a brand new family to where your main thing is the same main thing as them. And that's Jesus Christ. So the point of heaven is not just so that we'll recognize people who've gone on before us. But the point of heaven is to be with Jesus. And that's what makes heaven heaven. I heard Paul Washer say years ago, he said, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants God to be there when they get there. You see, he said, everybody wants to go to heaven, but they just don't want God to be there when they get there. When our hearts are changed and we're truly born again, we're no longer pasty, fake people who come to a place on Sunday morning, sing songs, regurgitate lyrics, but when we are truly born again, our passion becomes God and God alone. And that's the point of heaven. You say, well, Jeff, but would we actually recognize them there? Well, for us to understand, before we address that question, that death is the separation of the soul from the body. And the Bible talks about the resurrection that will take place when Jesus comes again. And in the resurrection, and this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and verses 42 through 49, we won't read all those verses, but the New Testament teaches, this is really, really interesting, that when we go if you've been saved, you die, your soul is separated from your body. When you go to heaven to be with Christ, there's going to be a time in which Jesus comes back in the second coming to where we are given what's called glorified bodies. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is, is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. It means that when the resurrection happens, that we will receive glorified bodies. Now, here's the thing. I don't know exactly what that looks like, 
But what it means is that we won't be limited in such a way that we are now. The glorified body is what Jesus has. It means that we will be like him. In Revelation chapter 7, this is so encouraging to me. In verse 9, this is the Apostle John seeing a vision of heaven and what would happen in the future. He says, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could count or number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So here's the way it shakes down. We will not have our glorified bodies yet in heaven, but we will still be recognizable. Because John does not say, I looked into heaven and I saw Casper the ghosts floating around. He doesn't say there were these ethereal bodies somehow wafting in and out of things and people and they bounced off the streets of gold. No, the apostle John says, I looked and I saw people. And if he can recognize them as people and they've not yet received their glorified bodies, how amazing is that going to be when Christ finally returns? But you know, here's the thing, guys. We could talk about the what ifs and the maybes, but when we talk about death, we can't get out of here before we just get really honest and let the Lord ask us, where are you with Christ? I mean, if you died right today, where would you go? Why do you think that about where you would go? We have people all across the U.S. They don't realize they're actually Muslims in their theology. But I want to ask you the question if you've been a person who said, well, I've tried to be good enough to get in. Here's the question. Is there evidence in your life that Christ has changed your heart so that you became a brand new person? It means you can still like nice clothes. You can still hunt. It doesn't mean that. But what it means is that you have brand new desire for God and to see people saved to his glory. Do you know him? I mean, let's not talk about the future. Let's talk about today. Over a hamburger at lunch, something happens and you are in eternity. Where would you go? You say, Jeff, I would go to heaven. What evidence is there in your life that Christ has changed you? The question is not, did you sign a card? Did you pray a prayer? That's not the question. The question is not, were you dunked in a a Baptistic church and not were you sprinkled in another denomination? The question is, is there evidence of a Christ-centered heart change that has resulted in a passion for God? And if it's not there, let's be straight up, you need Christ. Okay? I would be, I would be if we talked about this, and, then we, and I told you guys some of the funny stories that we talk about and we leave and we're just laughing, I cannot believe that pastor said that in church. If that was the way that we ended, I would be far worse the oncologist who did the scan on us and found something that was not supposed to be there and say, you know what, I just, they look like they're doing fine. I mean, what do you think, X-ray tech? I mean, they've got a good marriage and, you know, they're going to go get something nice after this to eat. I don't really want to, I want to rain on their picnic. Eternity is far more serious than cancer.
okay? As honest and as passionate and as humble as I can, I beg you to not look at the externals and say, because these things have happened or I've done such and such, and therefore I'm in. The New Testament goes to heart change that results in life change. Has your life been changed by Christ? And if there's no fruit, then there's no root. Okay? And Jesus loves us so much that for some of us, he put up with us for a long time. I went to church for a long time, and I heard the Bible taught because I was so filled with myself. I said, I'm not going to. I'm not going to do that, especially these weird churches that they all stand at the end and sing a song and people get up out of their seats and walk forward. And everybody was like, oh, what's wrong with them? I'm not doing that. I work hard. I make good, I make, I make good grades. I know some people who do need to go down during the invitation. And the Lord didn't kill me then but he gave me mercy. When I was 19, the crushing power of the law of God and the knowledge of my own sin, not my brothers, not my parents, not the people in my neighborhood, not the guys I knew who were smoking out and getting drunk when they were 13, not them. The cast net drew to her was only me in Jesus Christ. I do not care if you've been a member here for 90 years the question this morning from the New Testament is, has Christ changed your life? If not, you need Christ. The same as if someone came in here the first time, it's the first time they ever saw a Bible. It's the same. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. And here's my invitation to you this morning, this is from the scripture, that you would give your life to Jesus Christ that you would repent and turn over your life and your heart. You're like, well, Jeff, I, I joined Rocky Mount Baptist Church a couple of years, and I thought it happened, but it didn't. That's okay. Today is your day. Today is your day. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? As our team comes up to lead us in this final song. And I pray that God has spoken to you. And as we're just bowing our heads and closing our eyes so that we're not distracted as as I can be so easily. I'm asking you in this moment, will you give yourself to Christ? Will you commit, I am begging you today, would you give your life to Jesus? Will you commit yourself to the one who created you and loved you? And he knows everything that you've ever done, but yet he still loves you. That's a love that's far greater than we could ever conceive. And here this morning, through the teaching of his word, he is extending an opportunity for you to give your life to him. You say, Jeff, what does that mean? It means that you surrender control of your life to Jesus Christ and to his teachings. It's you admitting that you can't be good enough you can't balance those mythical scales on the side of good as opposed to the bad things that we've done. It's you admitting that it's only Jesus who can save you. It's you admitting that you're a sinner 
And she's saying, you know what, Jesus, I don't know all about the Bible. I don't know those big theological terms, but I know that I can't get in based upon me. And I'm throwing myself on your mercy this morning, saying, Jesus, save me. Save me, Jesus. In this moment, I beg you, don't push him away. Receive Jesus as your Lord and your Savior and your boss, your master.